And um, what was your funding strategy? So once you and Brian hit upon this idea that you were going to build a comprehensive closed system to do all these functions that you would otherwise have to piecemeal stitch together, yep. what, uh, how did you fund that early stage? Um, so I had the luxury of having recently at that time uh, sold my first company. So now I had this... Okay. Um, cash and so I uh, wrote the initial $500,000 check. Uh, it wasn't the million dollar check that I had written in my, uh, even though I had more money, uh, the check was smaller on my third startup, which is HubSpot. But, uh, and, and the motivation there was, um, you know, it was just enough money for us to kind of avoid some of the screwing we'd have to do, uh, but not so much that we were uh, going to use it unwisely, right? So I, I thought that was a good mix. Um, but then it was a classic. Uh, you know, as we were progressing, we recognized that it was a kind of venture backable deal, right? Um, and one of the pieces of advice I give to um, entrepreneurs is too many of them make the mistake to say, okay, I have this idea, I'm gonna go do this thing. And the first thing I'm gonna do is create a pitch deck and go start pitching investors to kind of get money. Um, and that most of the time is a distraction, right? Because lots of company, lots of great ideas that could conceivably turn into great businesses are just not great venture backable businesses. Those are not the same thing, right? Just because your company or your idea is not venture backable does not make it a bad business, right? In yeah. our case, it just so happens, uh, and, and this is partly by design, when Brian and I started it, you know, I had already made some money. I had promised my wife I was not gonna do another startup. So in order to do this, uh, both of us were like, okay, we had the proverbial kind of co-founder chat uh, before starting the company, um, which was in 2006 was when we officially launched it. I didn't want to launch it until after I graduated just because I made myself the promise I was going to be a student um, uh, and, uh, and enjoy, uh, enjoy being a student. But it's like, okay, well, it, like we're going to need the money. This is a classic venture-backable deal, and we are going to swing for the fences. We want to build a spectacular outcome that's going to be a big, sustainable, meaningful, impactful company, or it's going down and crashing, burning flames. We didn't want another kind of modest outcome exit. That wasn't gonna change my life, wasn't gonna change Brian's life. Um, so this was our, you know, in, in baseball terms, like our last step, step up to bat. Um, and we wanted to take uh, full advantage of that. So we made the decision early on, on day one of the company, that anytime there was a fork in the road, we were gonna take the fork that was, increase our probability of having that spectacular success, even though it also increased the probability that we might go down and crash and burning flames. Um, so, so we raised, um, you know, five rounds of private capital, uh, totaling about $105 million, um, and then went uh, subsequently went public, but yeah. And that first round of capital, did it come from Brian's firm? It did not. Um, so Brian's firm, it's, it's funny. So as we were kind of growing, um, here's another piece of good kind of funding, uh, funding advice. So, so Brian had worked for a VC. I had had a successful exit. We had both, you know, graduated from MIT, uh, and both had somewhat of a network. You know, we were, I won't say we were proven entities, but we, you know, on the, in the grand scheme of things. We were fundable, and I think we, we do a pretty good job with the pitch. Um, and so in the early stages, um, you know, we weren't accepting funding. So I had just written the $500,000 check. We had done another, um, like a million dollar angel round of just friends and family and people that we knew that we had kind of deposit in the bank, we hadn't even used it. And then we got introduced to a local venture capital firm, and not Brian's firm, a different one, um, through a friend, a classmate of ours at, at MIT. And we even told that classmate, like, we're not raising funding. You know, Darmesh wrote the first 500,000, we just put a million dollars in the bank, we're not looking for money. That's not our thing right now. 
because we're not even sure how to spend the million dollars that we have. We're just kind of heads down trying to trying to make the product better. And uh, they're like, no, 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 they're you know great guys. And it's like, okay, fine. If they want to come visit us in our office, which is a tiny little office that uh, you know had four desks, uh, they're welcome to do so. We're not raising funding, but there's nothing secret about what we're doing. We're happy to tell them. And from what we've heard, you know, VCs are relatively smart, and this company had a good reputation. This firm. It's like, you know, it'll be free advice, right? It's like, we can ask them, we can kind of bounce some ideas off of them, but, but we're not raising money. And so they came in, you know, we gave them a pitch um, and we're it's like, we're, we're not raising money, you're not raising money. Um, and then I think it was like a few months later, we're like, okay, you know what? Things are going well. We're likely going to raise money someday. Uh, if the terms are reasonable, why not go ahead and get that kind of past us? And we'll go ahead and so we went out to do a classic series A of $5 million. And we reached out to that venture capital firm um, and it was funny, and it's so uh, the kind of moral of the story is, this, despite the fact that we had a bunch of chips in our favor, right? We were reluctant raisers. I could have kept writing checks, so we had access to angel. It's like, okay, well, you know, the company was making progress. It was hard raising our Series A. It was not just a oh, well, money fell out of the sky because obviously they had so much interest and they were taking this meeting, and you know we had all the, yeah. You know, so uh, you'd think you would had all the, uh, all the power in that particular dynamic, and it was not easy. And the reason. It was not easy is because we were in the small business space um, and there was only one other company that ever made made a successful focused on small business uh, software company and that's uh, Intuit. Um, Intuit and that intersected with the fact that we were in the marketing space nobody had created anything of any magnitude uh, so you know, the biggest exit the company had seen uh, or the industry had seen was uh, Omniture which sold for like a billion and a half dollars um, to I think Adobe um, yeah. No one like marketing was a arts and crafts, you know, like, oh, you have like a small marketing team and they have a budget, but then you hire an agency to do your logo. And it's, it's, it's not something that software was used for a lot. This is in 2005. And so we had a tough time with the series A. Yeah. I kind of feel like it's not a bad thing to have a tough time raising a series A because most likely you're doing something new. Yep. And the market is not crawling with 27 other competitors who are trying to raise money for exactly the same idea. Yep. And uh, and the problem with that 27 com competitors trying to raise for this, uh, money for the same idea is that it's very noisy. Yes. And noisy markets are very difficult to penetrate. Yes, and very expensive, right? Because it just raises the very average cost expensive. of acquiring the same customer because so many people are fighting over that. That, you know, base set of customers, but yeah, I agree. Yeah. So um, I know we are uh, we have a limited amount of time, so I'll let you pick what are the highlights of the HubSpot journey that you want to underscore and discuss. So what is the next inflection point that had strategic insight as well as you know creativity and so forth that's worth discussing? Okay. Uh, so one. And this this is something I would share. So you know, people look look at HubSpot as this kind of success story. And um, the thing I would kind of remind um, our, our viewers and the audience and the entrepreneurs out there is that HubSpot did not start with a particularly brilliant idea. Um, so if you, you know, take our kind of modest success so far, most of it is attributed to two things. Uh, one is a kind of maniacal focus on the customer problem. So we picked our customer base, like here's who we're gonna here's who we're out to serve. Um, and had a maniacal focus on sticking to that problem, number one, uh, but not kind of wavering at all. So every board meeting we've ever had, when we went on the IPO roadshow, everyone would ask us like, okay, 
it's great that you started in small business, but what is your plan to go to the enterprise? Because that's where everybody does. Uh, and we resisted that. And I think that has served us well, which is uh, kind of focus, um, focus on that customer. And the second thing, which is underrated, um, is just raw execution. Um, you know, we, over time, we're fortunate enough to bring great people onto the team. Um, and kind of all modesty aside, we could have taken that kind of early team and even the later team, and we could have parachuted them into different business. Like, okay, we're not doing marketing and CRM software anymore. We're doing this over here. And I have a, I think they would have succeeded. And it's the, it's the culture of the company was strong. The focus on the customer, whoever that customer was, um, was strong. Um, and so, and one thing, if I had to, you know, impart one piece of kind of advice is that most entrepreneurs don't spend enough time thinking about the culture they want to create. And I understand that hesitation. It's because, oh, we're three people. We've got product to build and product to sell and funds to raise and all these things. Culture is something bigger companies worry about. It's like, we'll worry about that when we get there. Um, and there's some truth to that. Uh, but the reality is, and you don't have to, you know, write a hundred page, um, you know, document on what your culture is going to be. But the earlier you can kind of manifest the kind of company, it doesn't have to be fancy. It's like, here's the kind of company we want to build. Here are the kinds of people we want to be around and work with. You know, what are those? And there's no right answer, right? It's like in, in HubSpot's case, it's like we like uh, people that are kind of humble and transparent. Those are two of our you know, core values. Um, and there, you know, you might have another company that's equally or even more successful. It's like, no, we like aggressive people that are, you know, that are killers and go out there in the market and crush the competition. That's not our mindset. Those are not the people that we hire at HubSpot. And so whatever it is, whatever kind of company you want to build, um, get that documented um, and ideally get that out you know, like on your website so that as people are looking at your company as a possible place to join, they'll both self-select in, oh, that feels like the kind of company I want to join. But if they're not a good fit, they'll self-select out and it'll save you a bunch of time. Um, because if you end up hiring people that are not a culture fit, right, out of desperation, which often happens, people make this mistake, HubSpot's made this mistake, um, you incur what I call culture debt. So we understand technology debt, right? It's like, oh, that's when you take a shortcut and a piece of code. We understand financial debt because that's been around forever. It's like, oh, I'm going to use this cash because I need it now in order to grow or do this thing, but I know I'm going to have to pay it back with interest over time. Same with technology yeah. debt. I know I'm going to have to pay it back with interest over time. In both of those examples, with uh, technology debt and finance debt, you can just pay it off and you're done. It's like, okay, I wrote the check. I'm out of financial debt. I rewrote that code. I'm out of technology debt. When you take a shortcut on culture and incur a culture debt, A, the interest rate is super high. You may not recognize it at the time, but then it's very hard to pay off completely. Like, let's say you hire a complete jerk as employee six in the company and you know, other people join. It's like, oh yeah, that, because it kind of signals what kind of company you're willing, what kind of behavior you're willing to tolerate, what kind of company you are. And even if you let that person go, which you hopefully will, kind of some of that toxicity has kind of seeped in, right, into the soil, so to speak. Yeah. It's going to be much harder to kind of unroot that over time. So my advice would be don't spend hundreds of hours, but spend a day, spend a weekend with your co-founders and have that conversation. It's like, okay, who do we want? Uh, how, uh, how do we make decisions? What kind of culture do we want to have? Uh, once again, no right or wrong answers, but um, it makes life much easier uh, as, as you go. So um, a follow-up to that question, um, I know you have hired a lot from MIT. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, some of what you're talking about, my experience with MIT, when I was going to MIT, I did my undergraduate at uh, Smith College in Western Massachusetts. And uh, when I got into MIT, um, in, you know, I was in the ACE, ECS, I would have a 
I was in the PhD program in ECS, and I left out with a master's to go full-time with my company. I had already started my first company while at MIT. But when I was going from Smith to MIT, I just got the acceptance. One of the head of the department of computer science said to me that just because you got in doesn't mean you should go. And I was like, oh, here's a bucket of cold water on my enthusiasm. I was like, you know, ready to jump up and down. And, and his point was that MIT is a very cutthroat environment, and um, Smith was a small, very nurturing environment, and going on to this cutthroat environment, you may not enjoy it. And my experience of MIT was completely different from that. I didn't find MIT cutthroat. I found MIT people humble. I found them intellectually honest, and there was no cattiness, none of the, I mean, the, the level of intellectual exchange and dialogue was stimulating, and I just grew so much, and I felt so comfortable in that environment, in that I didn't have to be politically correct. I didn't have to worry about hurting other people's feelings. I could be intellectually honest, and, and uh, the combination of humility and intellectual honesty and just brilliance, pure brilliance, was, I thought, very unique. And I, I think uh, what you're describing in your cultural choices at HubSpot is a bit of translating that culture into HubSpot as opposed to a culture of you know, raw aggression and cutting corners you know, stepping over people and, and just kind of, you know, tolerating assholes, as you said. Yep. It's funny you should say that. So in the first kind of few years of HubSpot, we almost treated, and, and I agree with your sentiment and your experience at MIT, that was exactly my experience, right? People that were humble and collaborative, that you kind of enjoyed being around. It was not this competitive. Extremely I mean, collaborative. Extremely collaborative. Yeah, it's, and it wasn't about the grades. It wasn't about that. It was about learning and it was about debate. Uh, we can have an animated, rigorous debate on topics that you know we may yeah. or may not agree on. Um, but we carried that same kind of sentiment. So uh, the first few years of HubSpot were basically an extension of graduate school. Like, it was exactly the same. We were we had that same kind of let's get on the whiteboard, let's debate this. Uh, any person on the original exec team could argue either side of a particularly heated issue that we yeah. weren't able to kind of resolve. It's like, okay, there clearly there are kind of um, strong cases to be made on each side, um, and and that worked. And so then we we kind of documented that culture, right? It's like, oh, and we have this 128 slide deck called the Culture Code, um, and you just go to culturecode.com to look at it. Uh, but it shares with the world like how HubSpot works, and so and we've you know, taken elements out of MIT and um, and just you know things that we've learned over the years. But th that was impactful, right? So, um, and the thing that kind of, you know, we're in a very com you know, competitive space at HubSpot uh, across all the kind of product categories we compete in. But I think what, one of the things that, um, it's hard to build a sustainable competitive advantage in software these days, it really is. Because um, software has gotten, it's not easy, but it's easier than it was before. Uh, so the, the advantages these days are a combination of like a business model change. You're just gonna approach the same kind of category, not with a, a product that you know may be radically different from the existing um, existing products, but um, you know either pricing is different or your approach to business is different, um, and um, a kind of focus on culture and people. Like if you can get attract that team, I know it's going to sound cliched, but you want to build a culture that's going to attract you know the best and the brightest in the world. And and our experience is now um, most of those people gravitate more towards that humble um, kind of humble stance versus being you know the killer type. Yes, those are still out there. But even if you look at the leadership across tech now, uh, so you look at the next generation of leaders, you look at 
uh, Satya at, at Microsoft, even Sundar at Google, you look at uh, the Adobe CEO, it's like, these are all much more humble leaders than their predecessors, not the Larry Ellison uh, Oracle gene, right? It's uh, they're more mindful, more thoughtful, um, thought, thoughtful leaders that are the most successful um, in, in some of the more, you know, best, best companies. More human. More human, exactly, more empathetic, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So um, how many years did it take you to go from, you know, through the $105 million of financing into uh, the IPO? Let's see, we started in six, so it took us up, we'll say a little over seven years. A little over seven right. years. Yeah. So this is, you know, this is basically what VCs are looking for, to go from, you know, zero to 100 million in five to seven years and having an exit. Yep. This is the VC timeline, effectively. And, and, and what you pointed out earlier, and we point out all the time, is that not every entrepreneur has a venture that's, is amenable to that kind of timeline. This is super hyper growth. Hyper yeah. growth is not a natural state of business. Hyper growth yeah. is rare. Hyper growth is unique. So, but don't don't take that as a rejection. If you don't have a company that is going to go through hyper growth, so what? You build a company when next time round you can build something that has hyper growth. But don't get stuck yeah. on being venture capital friendly as your first venture, especially if you're a first time entrepreneur. I agree. I mean, entrepreneurs should focus on solving the customer's problem, not the investor's problem, right? The investors have like, oh, here's what we're looking for in order for this to make sense, which is fine. If your idea and your profile and your path happens to match that, great. But if not, um, I think it's a bad idea to spend a bunch of cycles trying to convince investors that this is a uh, you know, back, backable, um, you know, venture-worthy idea. If you took those same calories and just apply them solving your customers' problems, uh, you would have a much better business and a much better time. Because it's actually very deflating to be rejected by VCs. Uh, you know, like my first company, you know, we didn't try that much hard. Um, maybe like in the later years, in year seven or eight, we thought about you know um, raising venture capital. We were in a relatively big market, uh, but we you know we were never successful in, in raising venture capital. Uh, and this was a company that was you know doing reasonably well. Um, yeah, so it's a uh, it's not fun being rejected by a bunch of VCs. Um, well, it's much I, more I fun building things and building a business. I, I raised money for Intarka, 47 no's, and then 48 was NEA that wrote the check. And, and the, my crime was that I was doing product development in India. Well, yeah. you know, everybody does product development in India now, but it was too early and it was not known and not understood yep. at the time. Yep. So, okay, well, um, I know you've been investing aggressively for a long time now as an angel. Uh, what are your, uh, you know, what is, how do you think about investment? What is the investment thesis? What are the lessons from the trenches as an investor? Sure. Um, so I got started angel investing because uh, I had, remember, I had promised my wife I was not going to do another startup. So I was in grad school and I thought of angel investing as a way to live vicariously through other entrepreneurs, right? I was like, oh. Yeah. I'm going to miss the startup thing, which I already was doing. Um, like, and this is a little bit like I, the analogy I use is, uh, you know, for me, it was like having nieces and nephews, right? You get to play with them and they're cute and awesome. But yeah. then you get to hand them back to your parents and go back to your life, right? Uh, <laughs> and get your sleep. And uh, so I started writing angel checks while I was a student uh, in grad school. And my first uh, two angel investments were classmates uh, at MIT. And um, then when we decided to start HubSpot, you know, I had a kind of fork in the road. I had to make a decision. It's like, okay, well, what do I do about the angel investing? And the, and I'm a very, very big believer in focus, especially after I had made the mistake of doing two startups at the same time. I'm like, I'm never going to make 
that kind of mistake again. And so, but I thought it would be useful um, to do angel investing uh, in order to kind of, because it does kind of keep you plugged into what's going on in the world um, in, 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 and in tech. And so I made a decision when I started uh, formally kind of angel investing. I said, okay, HubSpot's my preoccupation, my first priority, my number one focus. And when I do angel investing, I'm going to be solving for time, not money. So my goal mm -hmm. is not to create a return on the investments that I'm making. My goal is to minimize the time that I spend making those investments because all of my time, you know, 99% of my time should be invested in, uh, in HubSpot. And so in order to, so once I had that first principle of like solve for time, not money, a bunch of decisions kind of, and, and uh, constraints and guardrails kind of flowed from that, which is, uh, so I've done 95 angel investments across my uh, annual investment uh, career. Uh, most of them, vast majority of them, I've never met the founders, never talked to them on the phone because that takes time. I've never done due diligence. Most of my decisions are within the first 24 hours of encountering the idea because I don't have time to do due diligence. Uh, I never lead a deal because leading a deal means you have to negotiate terms. Hey, here's what the overall structure is going to be because that takes time. I don't lead deals. So it's like, okay, someone else has to lead it and I will let someone else set the terms and I'm never going to negotiate terms. I will take whatever terms someone else has come up with. Um, um, I never have, you know, historically, I, I will never do follow-ons because then that requires tracking my entire portfolio to figure out which ones I should be betting on kind of next. And, and if I bet on some and not others, there's a signaling problem. It's like, why didn't Dermish you know, do the follow-on round for this thing as well? Because he doesn't do follow-on rounds, right? That's an easy answer to give uh, when people ask me. So anyway, that has been my MO, uh, sort of solving for time, not money. And I don't know if I just got lucky, which I did, uh, but... And so then the you know, natural question is like, okay, what kinds of startups do you pick? What do you invest in versus not invest in? And even though I don't meet the, the founders, I still like to believe that I invest in people. It's just that my set of inputs is different than you know, having founder meetings and things like that. I can tell you in a, in like 150 word email, whether someone is a jerk or not, right? You can tell like arrogance almost always seeps out. Um, so that's, <laughs> that's so I, and then you can look at their kind of responsiveness and just uh, how they kind of handle themselves online. Um, if, especially if they're blogging, they're on social media. Um, it's kind of easy, I think, to, easier uh, to read people. Uh, I like to I invest in ideas that I would use myself that I understand. So I have not done anything uh, you know, particularly crazy. It's all been software, something that I uh, something that I understand. But I would take my, and I'm not private about my portfolio at all. But I would take my angel portfolio and put it, put it up against any early stage investor on the planet, including VCs. I've had some really really big hits. Um, so which is what you need to do in investor land is uh, have some, you know, 100x kind of outcomes on a few. Which ones are your big hits? Uh, so Coinbase uh, was a big hit. That's 100x plus return. Uh, I was first money in Okta, which now has a market cap of $30, $40 billion, publicly traded company, another MIT Sloan uh, founder, uh, Dropbox. Um, trying to think, I'm an angel list on the angel side, which is a billion dollars in Stack Overflow, which just got acquired. Life 360, which went public, um, just a, yeah, I haven't done the math yet, but I think I've already returned 30 times my original investment and I still have a bunch of kind of unicorn level companies still in the portfolio, but yeah. So, um, so two, of them, two of the ones that you mentioned in there are MIT founders, uh, Todd and, and uh, Drew, right? Yeah. So yeah. is that a big factor in your portfolio? How, what percentage of your uh, investments are in the MIT community? Um, a fair number, I would say probably maybe close to 10 are from the community, yeah. but I may not have had contact through the, that particular network and it may be just happenstance that it, they happen to be MIT founders. I hadn't, 
I didn't actively go with, especially except for my kind of early investments, actively go seeking MIT entrepreneurs. But um, it just turned out that way. Um, and, and like, and the, you know, the number one thing I kind of solve for is, you know, do they have the same dispositions? Like, uh, the question I ask in my head is, is this the kind of person I would hire at HubSpot? You know, do they have the same kind of value? Yeah. Um, and you know, the founders I invest in, you know, kind of manifest those values. So if you look at Drew or uh, Freddie from Okta, they're they're just good people. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it, right? They're just good people, high integrity, um, you know, not not arrogant uh, and not lacking confidence by any any stretch. Um, but yeah, just good people. And do you accept pitches directly, or are you accepting pitches from people who have chosen to lead the round and not want to bring you in? What's the process that you yeah. follow to to manage your time? Yeah, mostly the latter. So I don't I don't look at kind of direct pitches that are sent to me. Once again, solving for time, not money. Uh, so most of the kind of quote unquote deal flow comes from my immediate network or from someone leading around, uh, and it could be a an angel or a VC that's doing around and invites me in because they know my areas of interest. Um, a lot of times, I mean, I've invested in the same founder across multiple companies, um, so I've done that several times. Uh, in my experience so far, the sample size is small, is that those second companies end up doing much better than the first ones. They learn their lessons, um, okay. do much better. Uh, but yeah, it's like the, and some of it, you know, will come, like the Coinbase one, uh, was a, a little bit of rare things. I had this kind of strong belief in cryptocurrency back when that wasn't as cool as it is today. And yeah. I wasn't sure that Coinbase was going to be the one to kind of pull it off, but I'm like, someone is going, like this thing needs to exist. Uh, you know, someone. Someone's going to do it. This feels like, you know, as good a bet as any, as far as what things were going on at that time. Um, so I'd like to, and so I'll, I'll, I'll leave you this system to, I have a, a mini framework um, for assessing ideas and it works both internally if you're assessing ideas within your company or making investments. Um, number one thing I look at is the, um, is the potential, which is how, if everything went correctly, if all the stars aligned, the founders achieved their vision, how big could this conceivably be? What's the overall kind of limit? Um, number two is the kind of probability of that outcome, right? And so this is the geek in me. It's like, okay, so the mistake a lot of people make is they'll look at the probability of success of any particular idea and say, oh, I only have a 1% chance of pulling this off, and so I'm not gonna do it. That, that's the high order filter. It's like, oh, odds are too low. When I think the right way to approach it is a statistical way, which is the calculate the expected value. Now, don't just look at the probability of, of success, multiply that by the outcome if that thing is successful and look at the expected value um, statistically of, of the thing. And the third P is around uh, passion or proximity. You know, am I excited about this particular idea or is it close, is it proximus to things that I know and things that I care about um, that I can bring some expertise to the table? And so across those three factors, you know, I look for the right kind of mix. Is, does it have the potential? Um, you know, is there a decent chance that the, you know, they'll pull this off based on the team? Um, and am I excited about it? That's, uh, yeah. And uh, two questions out of that. One is who, um, name of, you know, few people who constantly refer you deals so that if you want our entrepreneurs here to want to work with you, whom do they need to go through? Um, let's see. Well, the kind of usual suspects are anyone that's uh, put money in HubSpot because that you know I have that network. So if you look through all of our rounds, General Catalysts here from now Boston and the West Coast, uh, Matrix Partners, um, Sequoia um, is in there. Um, so all of those, um, you know, definitely. Uh, or might be even easier is um, any founder that I've invested in. So my you know my portfolio is online. So 
Uh, if you happen to be connected to you know one of my founders and they know you and can kind of say, hey, Dharmesh, I will open those pitches. I will read those pitches and those emails. If, um, if any of my existing portfolio companies say, hey, uh, this founder is special. There's something really, really cool about this company. Um, I, I will take a look. Um, the good news about me is that uh, although I don't add any value because I don't sit on advisory boards, I don't you know take mentoring kind of roles because I'm solving for time, not money. I am also the uh, lowest maintenance investor in the world, right? Like I like I will never <laughs> ever. I always side with the entrepreneur. Doesn't matter what the issue is. Um, but uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm gonna make you do a bunch of work and I'll deliver a decision in 24 hours. Um, so at least it'll, it'll be clear. You're not gonna. I'm not gonna make you spin your wheels and give you give you homework to do. So last question before we adjourn, I know we are at the end of the uh, time that you had uh, reserved for us. Um, what needs to exist out there that you are looking to invest in? Um, a couple of things, and these are a little bit niche -y. Uh One I just, I just talked about recently on, um, you know, HubSpot has a podcast called The Hustle. Um, it's a great podcast. Uh, the episode just went live yesterday. So look up the hustle Darmesh uh, and you'll see it. But I'll, t I'll tell you the, briefly the idea. Um, I think a professional network needs to exist. So we have um, social networks and multiple ones, Twitter, Facebook. Uh, in the professional network world, we really only have one, which is LinkedIn, which kind of has a dominant position, uh, now owned by Microsoft. Um, I think there's time. And you know, I love the people at LinkedIn. I think the product has stalled a little bit. Um, and I think it was great for its time. But I think someone needs to build something like that, either kind of more focus on individual verticals and, and kind of split it up or a different take on uh, what LinkedIn is. And I have kind of details around what that would look like. So that's number one. Uh, number two is I think um, applying natural language processing, not necessarily voice, but just natural language processing uh, to software interfaces. I think that's going to be a, a mega trend that I'll give you the 45 second kind of pitch on why that is the case. So most software companies, when they build a product, they will say, oh, our product is really intuitive to use, right? It's like, oh, it's easy, you know, easy and intuitive. That's the kind of you know, common pitch. And I think that's uh, misleading because most software is absolutely not intuitive. That is not the word that comes to mind because here's the way it works. It's like, okay, I have this thing I want to do with this piece of software. I have to take the thing that I want to do and translate that into a series of clicks and drags and touches or whatever based on my knowledge of that software. So I'm translating my intent into this thing that I want the software to do, right? And that takes calories and that is not intuitive. What would yeah. be intuitive is like, let's say you're using Photoshop. I'll just take that as an example. And instead of um, learning, it's like, okay, I want to take the back, background off of this image or I want to remove the ship or whatever the thing may be. You should just be able to type, remove the background off this image, turn it to black and white, whatever it happens to be, right? I shouldn't have to go, it's like, oh, I know I need to kind of select that thing and then I do an edit and do layers and do all this stuff. And it shouldn't be a series of 14 steps. My intent is very clear. We have the technology now in terms of NLP. It works well enough to do the kinds of things yeah. we're talking about. But I think um, the reason I call it a mega trend is that idea is ap applicable across hundreds of industries, right? So we were, yeah. so that we had the last two big shifts we've seen in terms of software. One uh, was the shift to the web. So now, oh, the world is connected. We don't have to have client software. You can run the software over a browser. Awesome. Uh, then we yeah. went to mobile, so we're going to like, oh, all the things you used to do at your desk, now you can do mobile, and it opens up some new use cases. Awesome. Uh, but this would be a, another kind of nonlinear jump in making software accessible, where it's basically transparent. You just express it. So, for instance, even like business apps, I'll, I'll give myself a hard time. It's like, okay, every analytics app is like, okay, well, in order to find out how many customers you sold over the 90, last 90 days that were from California, 
you go to their reporting tool and you say, okay, I'm looking for customers, not prospects. I'm going to pick the geo, and then I want to sort it by, you know, opportunity value or whatever it is. Well, that you know, you, should, you have to learn that. Why not just be able to say, show me how many customers did I sign up for in California last last quarter? I should just yeah. be, type that question in, and the system should be able to give me an answer. That is not rocket science. You know, Elon's putting people on Mars. Uh, we we can do this. Um, so I think that's a interesting opportunity. Anything kind of applying that to any given industry or any given piece of software, that'll be another leap. So any company that has that feature over time wins out over the, those that don't. Uh, just like the web. Okay. Uh, the web replaced all the client server apps and the companies that industry didn't have web-based applications. People made bazillions of dollars just creating web versions of old client software and did a really good job. I think that solved the problem. Anyway, I'll, that's, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, no, no, very good, very good. So. Um, I, I think we should stop there. It was a marvelous conversation, <laughs> as I expected. <laughs> Normally, we have guests for half an hour, and I had uh, requested Dharmesh to give us an hour to do this interview just because uh, I knew he was, you were going to be so generous and, and so you know insightful. Um, so I hope, audience, you've enjoyed this, and, and I'm sure a lot of people will be listening to this and recording as 